This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 615 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. A velvety worm, Jaime saves Palmera City, meet Paris and France, and we play two rounds of Longbox Roulette. This is How I Got My Wife Three Comics for Sunday, April 30th, 2023. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614 614- Three two one nine seven three seven. That's six one four three two one nine SFP. Unstoppable Doom Patrol number two of six by Culver, Burnham, and Reber. This issue is filled with Doom Patrol references from throughout its history. But we begin in a robot fight with said robots displaying Peacemaker's symbols. I thought Peacemaker was running a covert mission. Anyway, Beast Girl saves Worm, a young man attached to an alien worm named Velvet. They agree to go with the team to the secret HQ, the shelter, somewhere in Kansas. We get a classic cutaway map of the underground structure. Rita notes that Beast Girl likes Worm, and Cliff hopes he won't break her heart. Cliff has somewhere to be, but not before asking Chief to let out Jane. She'll pencil it in for the summer. There's a gymnasium run by Flex Mentallo. We learn that Flex and Rita are an item. A young trainee announces his code name, Silo Simon, to Larry. Chief runs into the chief, Niles Calder, who is trying to memo his way back into running the team. He is reminded that his accidents created half of the team, and he's lucky to be allowed in as a consultant. Back to Cliff, who visits Dorothy Spinner's grave, saying that she would love the new team. Meanwhile, Degenerate makes a fuss. He just wants to go on a mission. He was meeting with Dr. Cinco, team psychologist. She then meets with Worm, and we see her therapy methods, which involve her channeling a set of five fifth-level intelligences named Jikchen, Elium, Rez, Raz, and Yizd, a.k.a. Jerry. Now, see, I thought those were five-dimensional imps. Mm, they could be. She could be channeling them. Yes. Somewhere else entirely, an Asian girl sees a light that says, it's time to come home, time to go to war. And that's all we get about that. Back at the shelter, Worm, who's actually an undercover agent for Peacemaker, is questioning the whole plan. Peacemaker reminds Worm that he still has that explosive bolt in his neck from his Task Force X days. Worm then sends off Velvet on his task, getting intel on the team. From the vents, he sees Flex and Rita on the couch, Cliff trying to reach Danny via a radio, Larry sleeping while his negative being meditates, Jane trying to get back out of the underground, 
some mystical characters from the Young Animal Doom Patrol series meeting as the Graveminders, although Doom Patrol Dark is also in the mix. And Niles talking to Think Tank 2, a huge tank of liquid where Mento lives. Velvet checks this out, and Mento detects him, telling him to leave now. This last piece is of huge interest to Peacemaker, as it means they need to act now. Worm is told to take out the think tank, but he refuses. He's not a killer. Peacemaker hits the button to set off the neck bomb, and nothing happens. Worm tries to escape to the surface and is met with Cliff, Beast Girl, and Chief. They are jamming the signal, but can't do it for long. They knew about him all along. Worm asks them to take Velvet, hoping that he can survive without him. Cliff tosses Worm into the air. Sorry I let you all down, and he explodes. Peacemaker's boss is angry. You got too greedy, soldier. Intel is a long game. Peacemaker calls the mission a success. Worm is not the metahuman, sir. It's Velvet. And now we have a spy that no one will question. Blue Beetle, Graduation Day number 6 of 6 by Trujillo, Gutierrez, and Quintana. So here's the situation. Jaime has been sent to Palmera City for the summer since he decided not to go to college. The League agreed with this move as that would take him off the board for now. There, he got involved in an event involving an alien invasion and two more Beetle-esque soldiers. Now, the Horizon, an alien armada, are about to crash into the city. A communication comes through, and Jaime's armor translates it. The Horizon is not invading, they are on the run. Oh, and their ship is out of control. Fortunately, the League is on site, and Bruce starts barking out orders, telling Jaime to take point. We trust you. If anyone can stop this, it's you. Jaime, Clark, Shazam, and Green Lantern fly out to slow down the ship and are not doing so well. Jaime uses his newly powered-up armor to push the ship toward the water with an internal monologue about mentors, friends, and family. He uses up all his reserves but does the job while the other heroes protect civilians from debris. Clark grabs a falling Jaime and takes him down so he can speak with the Horizon. They ask for aid against the Reach, but then see Jaime, assuming he's with the bad guys. Clark puts in a good word, and they're eventually convinced that Jaime is on their side. Green Lantern says she'll contact the Guardians about a planet for them to live on, but Jaime insists they stay right there. Starfire asks who will care for them, a cue for Victoria Cord to come down in her helicopter. Cord Industries will handle that. Bruce has some misgivings, but the League will have Jaime's back. Clark congratulates Jaime for saving the day, but asks him if he's up for this kind of responsibility. He responds that he has a family behind him. The issue ends with a three-pager all about the new adventures and a party. It seems like this was originally a longer story, like an ongoing, that got cut down. The ending is rather deus ex machina-y. The Ambassadors, number three, from Image by Millar and Sherist. We skipped the second issue of the series due to a big pile of comics to cover, not so much this time. The concept, after decades of failure by world governments to create superheroes, a private entity makes it happen and decides to give said powers to a worthy representative of each country. This issue, France. Yasmin, a single mom, is worried about her son Jean-Luc. She finds a plan to murder his classmates in his room. Let's just say he doesn't fit in. He says he's just having fun. She feels she can't be a role model for him. No money, no status. So she applies to be an ambassador. Then, 
she can be his role model. Months later, Yasmin talks to Jean-Luc about the ambassador program. He thinks it's crap, and besides, it would be like winning the lottery. Well, it turns out she was accepted and has been the heroine France for a while. She takes him down an Adam West-like set of poles to an underground lair with tons of equipment. She can download any three superpowers at a time via a wristband, and she got him one, too. And now he's Paris. They immediately go on a mission, no training or anything, driving a supercar to confront jewel thieves. The car has camouflage ability, so it can look like a beat-up car. They break in on the thieves, and we learn that they also have an aura that makes them bulletproof. They download some superpower apps, and it's biff, pow, smash, and they leave the thieves tied up thanks to telekinesis for the cops. There's an apartment fire, the car goes airborne, and they go fireproof to save civilians. There's a runaway train. France disconnects the engine while Paris uses super strength to stop the train. From a distance, Monsieur Jamie sees all this, and when asked what he thinks of the new heroes, he replies, I see dead people. Back to the embassy, Shun He is replying to Yasmin's texts. Turns out she wasn't the one chosen, it was her son. He applied, saying that Yasmin was the best mom in the world, making sacrifices, not bad-mouthing her ex-husband. Jean-Luc thought she needed some fun. At her job, a hotel concierge, Yasmin is approached by a woman who wants to make her an offer on behalf of Jing Sung, Chun He's ex-husband. Meanwhile, we see Jean-Luc at a bridge. He takes a gun out of his bag and drops it in the river. Apparently, his plans about his classmates weren't just having fun. Well, with such a small poll over the past two weeks, we covered everything I got with the exception of an Ahoy miniseries missing the first issue I'm waiting to receive before we go ahead and read it. So it's time to activate Long Box Roulette. I have a collection of over 23,000 comics going back to the mid-80s with a handful from the 70s purchased when I was a kid or handed off from my brother. I use a random number generator to pick out comics from that collection, which means we'll not only review them, but provide some context as to what was going on at the time. I happen to be in the middle of a major reorganization of the collection right now, so I'll pull a random comic from whatever box I'm working through. Place your bets. Bloody Mary, number one of four from DC Helix. Boy, we haven't heard Helix for a long time. October 1996 by Ennis and Quera. In 1996, DC created a sci-fi fantasy imprint named Helix. Early promotional materials called it Matrix changed due to the upcoming film. It was designed to bring in successful sci-fi authors, Michael Moorcock, Lucius Shepard, and Christopher Hintz were involved, as well as big comic creators, Shaken, Simonson, and Garth Innes. The comics never sold well, and any ongoing titles were dropped in 12 issues or less. Only one title, Warren Ellis's Transmetropolitan, went longer, and that title was moved over to Vertigo when Helix closed up in 1998. Bloody Mary is partly set in the far future of... 2012. It's set in an alternate history where France and Germany merge into a super state in the 1990s, wiping out 30 million immigrants in their European territory. The U.S. and U.K. are forced to unite in a war against Europe, if only to save their own economies. 
a prolonged war continued into the 2010s, eventually ending in a stalemate on the ground. In 2012, a nun arrives at a cathedral now bombed out and being used as an infirmary. She has been called in to give last rites to a prisoner in the crypt who has been tortured. She is sent down and proceeds to pull out a machine gun, wiping out the guards. Her mission is to get him out. She says if he's got the film. When he says it's in his tooth, she kills him as well. She leaves, noting, I feel old. Later, European President Rochelle, with a headquarters in the Vatican, is sent a video by Anderton, a soldier for hire. We see a golem-like creature that beats the crap out of some troops. Anderson's deal? All the info to create an army of these troops, strong and apparently bulletproof, for $1 billion. Anderton got the info from a Chinese lab that he then wiped out. Rochelle debates this. Will Anderton just take the money and open negotiations with the other powers? He tells his assistant to send the Vat Man to get the info and take out Anderton. Later, the nun, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, checks in with London HQ. She hands the CO the tooth she extracted. We also meet the Major, a soldier who lost his memory after a bullet to the head. Now he just knows how to lead a kill team and has fun doing it. Mary tells him she's ready to pack it in. At the Pentagon, the Gollum video is shown. Anderton is planning to sell it to everyone. They also plan to send in a kill team, but Anderton is the best at what he at that, especially after he wiped out the rest of his team. There is another choice. Back to Mary and the Major, who are assigned to take out Anderton. Anderton realizes they will send Mary after him. After all, who else is there? He then takes out a canister and releases a bizarre lizard creature which proceeds to go down his throat. He staggers, then tries to slice into his arm. This is the treatment. Okay, Mary, come and get me. Bloody Mary would go on to a second four-issue mini, Bloody Mary Lady Liberty. Both minis were collected into a trade in 2005. One more round of roulette. Michael Chabon presents The Amazing Adventures of the Escapist No. 2 from Dark Horse, April 2004, by McCarthy, Sinkowitz, Gold, Colon, Tamai, Baron, Myridge, and Brereton. The Escapist has an interesting journey. Starting as the fictional hero in Chabon's book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which was an homage to creators in the Golden Age of Comics. Similar to Siegel and Schuster, and Superman, the creators wind up making very little from a character that generates a fortune. The book within a book has an origin story, of course. Tom Mayflower, the crippled nephew of a stage escape artist, sees his mentor shot on stage. He gives Tom a golden key and costume, explaining he will be the latest in a long line of crusaders to fight tyranny. As long as he wears the costume and key, he's no longer crippled and can perform amazing feats. He fights alongside sidekicks and against the Iron Chain, a criminal network. His benefactors give him full superpowers during World War II. Later, a new escapist takes over the role as the comic's creators try to go grim and gritty. Shaban and Dark Horse completed the circle in this comic, making The Escapist a real comic book hero in a series of 80-page anthologies. We get the following stories in this issue. The Mechanist. A supervillain tries to take revenge against Luna Moth, a partner of The Escapist, using robots to attack the city. 
the mechanist actually wants her to help his comatose daughter, whom he had neglected while being consumed with defeating the heroine. She is more than willing to do so and uses her magic to revive the girl. She wants to help her dad with his machines, but he's off to jail, and the daughter continues the never-ending battle. The Lady or the Tiger This story requires a two-page text intro explaining a tortured path of a 1970s escapist story to publication, weaving in other comic book tales and creators of the time. Tom pursues a mysterious female escapist, torn between his love for her and her less-than-savory history. Turns out she was created by the Iron Chain. Divine Wind, a manga version of The Escapist, produced in the 80s, reportedly written by Clay himself. It involves a kamikaze pilot who becomes the god of escapes. Again, the story requires a text intro. We then get a reprint from the Comics Journal explaining the various ages of The Escapist as it moved from publisher to publisher. This is clearly a reference to Miracle Man. 300 Fathoms Down, an elderly escapist is called back into duty to save a submarine and its crew involved in an experiment gone awry. Old Flame, Luna Moth and her secret identity goes on a date. Unfortunately, the handsome devil, with whom she had a fling in a former life, decides to step in with plans to take over her date and continue their relationship. They fight to a draw before she tricks him back into the book where he was previously trapped. The artwork is fantastic throughout, with various stylistic choices. There would be a total of eight issues of this anthology series, along with a six-issue miniseries after that. I had forgotten about that one, and boy, it was good, wasn't it? It was very good. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.